I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Hello once again, folks. This is Matt Dixon and the Purple Patch Podcast. I am your host, and today... We have part one of a special two-part series with Purple Patch professional athlete, Jesse Thomas. Now to get into part one, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to pause. I want you to think about the image of a professional athlete breaking the tape as they win a massive race. Now my guess is that conjured up image doesn't really align with the 2011 version of Jesse Thomas who did just that at the Wildflower Triathlon. This is his story and includes a man van, sleeping in a closet, drugstore sunglasses, borrowed bicycles and missing race numbers leading to confusion over the mystery man who was winning the race. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Thomas and it's the story of his first wildflower win. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wings. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek, it's the Dixon The word of the week this week, guys, patience. But I want to say this word specific to a session or race. And in fact, I want to give you a couple of case studies of how patience led to great performance over the course of a single session. These are two examples in the last week of not giving in on a session, even when it starts off by feeling awful. The first, back at Alcona camp, the queen ride, the most challenging ride of the whole camp. And the start of the day included a 12-mile climb. Yes, I am that nasty as a coach. Were two athletes, Kathleen Frost and Maria Luz Ariano, or who I like to call her, Pinky, began riding terribly. They had sore legs. They had no energy. In fact, it's fair to say it was the worst riding I've seen either of them do ever. The chin was down. I came up lazily on my moped next to them and said, stay with it. Go through the gears and tools. Don't let the chin drop. It's at this point that many would resign themselves to a day of misery, as so often the mind leads the body. But Kathleen and Pinky stayed with it. They ate, they hydrated, they pushed on. And what they did is focus on the task. What could they do to try and make themselves feel better? The end result? Well, you might have guessed it. They ended up coming home with the fastest riders on a massive day, and they were two of the strongest in that fast group over the last couple of hours. Patience and persistence and staying with it mentally opened up the legs and allowed them to have a terrific day. So validating and, of course, so uplifting emotionally. I then return from the Kona camp, and I get to watch the Boston Marathon. One of my favorite runners, Des Linden, we've coached her husband, Ryan, for several years, was in the lead pack. What I hadn't realized is the story that came out of the race following. The first two to three miles of the race, she felt so bad that she thought she might have to drop out. In fact, she started offering help to some of her teammates. Anything I can do to help you, Shalane, I'm going to help you. And yet she stayed with it. She stayed with the cause and slowly her legs unblocked. Gradually, as others started to fade, Des continued to emerge and had become one of the stronger runners in the race. Finally, well, you probably result, know the result by now. The first US woman to win the Boston Marathon in 33 years. Patience and persistence and not giving in mentally. So the next time you start off work, the workout, 
or a race poorly, don't get it stuck in the mindset of resignation. Instead, stay focused on the mission and be patient. Sometimes the body might just reward you. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. Let's get on with the Jesse Thomas story. This is part one of a two-part series with Jesse Thomas. Today, we're going to focus on his first big win, the Wildflower Triathlon. It's amusing, funny, inspirational, and there are plenty of lessons around performance in there. Part two, we're going to go on and talk about his life as a CEO, a father, a husband, and of course, a world-class triathlete. That's coming up in a couple of days. Until now, I hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned. At the end of this episode, we outline how you can win a fantastic amount of prizes with our Wildflower giveaway in conjunction with Roka and Picky Boss. We're looking forward to it. But now, the main event. All right, guys, so this is the meat and potatoes. And this week, we have a special two-part series and we're welcoming someone who's been a huge part of the Purple Patch family for the last 10 years or so. Professional athlete, good mate of mine now, Jesse Thomas. Jesse, welcome. Hey, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. I don't know if it's deserving of a two-part series, but um, you know, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, one one little piece of your career is uh, is what we're going to talk about today. Yep. And um I'm going to go through and we're going to talk about Wildflower, a very, very special race globally in the sport of triathlon. I think both of us feel like it is an, uh, one of the epic races of the sport of triathlon historically coming back this year, but obviously one that you've had a, a fantastic experience and, and been part of creating the legend of that race. And so we're going to spend all, all day today just talking about that. And then in part two, we're really going to go into you as an athlete, you as a CEO, you as a father, and talk about the intersection of those three and how you're achieving world-class performance and at the same time growing a company and growing a family. So we're going to shelve all of that conversation today. Let's start with your bio a little bit because I, I like to be gushing to you. I like to highlight what a fantastic what a fantastic person you are. But um, let's go through. So so you're married to Lauren Fleshman. Many people will know Lauren from her own athletic career and influence in her sport of running. Uh, two children, Jude four, Zadie now six months. I can't believe it's already been six months. Yeah, yep. your education. Uh, you, you actually have. I don't. Many people you come across as this uh, this light and uh, and fluffy guy, but Stanford Engineering, both bachelor's and masters, and then <laughs> you went on after your Stanford athletics career where you ran there as a steeplechase runner which as you know sometimes steeplechase runners are always a little bit strange but (laughs) (laughs) but um for for you guys that follow steeplechase or athletics track and field generally uh, you were 835 in the steeplechase which is incredible performance that was good enough for the eighth at the nc2a level and and even post uh stanford you went on to get your mba at university of oregon if i'm correct yeah, that's right. Following, yeah, yeah. In my first job, we actually printed uh, my cards, my my business cards that had it said 
Jesse Thomas, design engineer, smarter than I look. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? said that. <laughs> How did you know that at that time in the in the late two thousands that it was still um it was still true in two thousand eighteen? Right? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> You'd think people would take me more seriously now, but they don't. <laughs> and and triathlon. Uh, when I started to get involved with you, you are as we're going to focus on today, six time wildflower champion. Yeah. You've also uh, gone on and had a little experiment at Ironman and managed to win two Ironman races with that little fun experiment and countless 70.3 races. So you are bona fide a world-class athlete. Right. Uh, You are also the second best athlete in your family. Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends on where you rank Jude. We don't really know. He might be in front of me as well. Emerging greatness. (laughs) Emerging greatness. So so we're going to talk today only, only about one thing, the wildflower story. And th- this was your, your – we're going to focus on your first racing experience at Wildflower. And, uh, and firstly, I want to frame what we're going to talk about this because this, was, this race, this experience for you, what happened there, it's now many years ago. But, um, but many people won't know the story, and I think it's, it's a wonderful story, but it was really the platform – for your professional triathlon career in many ways. And certainly for you and I, it was a, a shared experience and quite a funny experience on many, many levels that hopefully we'll get to today. Yep. So, so let's just frame the race first and let's talk about the Wildflower Triathlon. Uh, it was such a fundamental or key pivotal component in your career. And it's also a story of your first experience there that's full of a lot of surprise and a lot of humor. And hopefully a lot of that comes out today. But the race itself, one of the most historic races in triathlon, it began in 1983. The first winner was Dean Harper. It's based out of Lake San Antonio in California, which is near Paso Robles in sort of Central Valley. So if you've ever read John Steinbeck novels, if you close your eyes, that's the sort of terrain we're talking to. And in the late 80s, it evolved to a half Ironman distance. It's really known for its rugged, tough course, a lot of trail running. Uh, a lot of challenging heat and in fact aid stations that are often clad with naked college students and very guessable beverages from my experiences in other words it's a carnival at the peak this race was drawing in almost 8,000 competitors with another 30,000 spectators all of them basically camping in this secluded destination so it was wonderful you've won it more than six times or you've won it six times i should say and we're going to talk about that first race so all right so so let's get into it let's talk about wildflower but i think to get there i think we have to first talk about you joining purple patch because we're going to we're going to start with your first journey into triathlon because the wildflower journey really started with us meeting each other and a less than successful race that happened a couple of weeks prior so Let's go all the way back. When did you? When were you first introduced to Purple Patch? Do you remember who introduced you to to me or Purple Patch? Well, you're you will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that I think it was Matt Lieto and or Lindsey Corbin. It might be. It might have been both of them. Um, but I think it was. I think it was Matt was was coached by you, and Matt was somebody that I knew from Bend, um, and I was reaching out about you know who would be a good coach. And I think he referred me to you. Is that right? I, I, I think that's by my memory. I do remember yeah. Lindsay, Lindsay having a role as well. Yeah, I um, think Lindsay too. And, yeah. well, and it's basically like those were the, those were literally the two people that I knew that did triathlon professionally. 
and they were both coached by you. So I pretty much just like didn't even have a choice. You you were just swept into the family like a mobster, (laughs) basically. Exactly. Do you you remember our initial discussions when we sort of coach athlete discussions? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You might jog my memory about some of it. Well, I remember one thing very clearly, and that was uh, was the physical component, a discussion around your swim. Uh, you had done some triathlons before joining me and I remember you'd you'd gone to Europe for uh, a little bit of a break and loitered around but it it was very clear that your aspirations and we'll get into your aspirations from a career level but your aspirations were world-class performance Uh, the swim was were not world-class and (laughs) and um, one thing I specifically remember because this feeds into your first wildflower race was that I asked you to do a swim project and effectively for the first several months that you were training under my guidance, probably 50% of your weekly training hours were focused around swimming and you coming from a running background. Do you remember that block of training that we did there? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I, I do because I'm still, I still have nightmares about it. And, um, we, and, and actually I, I remember that just because it, even more, generally because that was something that we did every winter for the first like three or four years of my career we'd have this like just uh from my perspective super rough boring tiring uh time in the pool all winter long it's like dark out it's just a very like depressing season for me (laughs) to be to be in the pool working on my weakness uh but it made a huge difference obviously it it did and on equal to that uh you had um really minimal running i mean we we were running three times three times a week or or even less than that sometimes weren't we yep yeah almost none yeah I i remember that very specifically going from you know thinking that uh probably like a lot of uh, you know, people that don't there, and there are less and less people that come to the sport now with no swimming background, but like a, like an amateur, you know, thinking that a two K three K swim was about as long as I ever was going to go, um, going to swimming up to four five, six, seven, eight K, um, doing two swims a day, uh, once or twice a week. And then, you know, going from, I remember volumes going from, you know, 15 K a week to, uh, you know, averaging more like 25 to 30 with some weeks, like 40 to 50 K of swimming, which is just nuts. And and, and you did many of those amongst a, an age group swim team where they were mostly yeah. 13 and 14 year olds. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It was, uh, it was my most, it was actually, it was maybe my first or second triathlete magazine column was my experience being the secret nemesis of this 13 year old girl that was that swam in in my lane and thinking that I was as fast as her because I did most of the same sets that she did and then she got in and she swam a 1k at this little meet at the local pool and you wanted me to swim a 1k as well so I was in the next heat and I remember she went out and she swam like 107s or 108s and I remember she went out in the first 200 meters in one in 107s and I was like oh she's going to blow up there's no way and then she held it and I was like oh my gosh she swam 
whatever time that is, 107s in for a 1K. And I was like, well, sh- well, shit, I'm going to be, I'm going to swim 107s. <laughs> so, so I went out there and I swam, you know, predictably maybe two, two to two and a half 107s and then proceeded to swim like 115 to 118 for the next 800 meters. I, I don't think the fish was that big. I think you got one 107 and then it went down. Yeah, it, might have been one. it might have been one, but she, she beat, she beat me by about a minute and a half. <laughs> over that k it was brutal humbling but but the quest is so you have this massive platform and it was absolutely necessary and in the big picture of course it brought your swimming up to to the level that we could uh, exploit ultimately your strengths which has become your bike in unison with um with the run but going into your first pro full pro season you've basically had your strength stripped away with you. You've done this massive platform of swimming and you're really, um, you, you had a, uh, some riding background, but it certainly wasn't these big winter miles. And, and yeah. your first, your first race was a two weeks. I think it was exactly two weeks before wildflower where we, yeah. where we went to Galveston. And yeah. uh, so you've started with this new coach and, uh, and he's stripped away your strength and you've gone to Galveston was it a super day at Galveston? No, it was uh, it was a rough day, and it was it, it. Looking back on it, is actually like not to add too much more detail, but we I actually went to Texas and raced twice, if you remember correctly. We I raced the I raced this uh, something X triathlon that was an Olympic distance triathlon, um, but that was that was I where I didn't do too too bad, and then. Um, the next week I raced my first half, but you know, Olympic, I didn't need to know anything about nutrition, hydration, yada, yada, yada. I go into the next one in Galveston and be, and I think almost because I had had this decent ish experience in the first one, I almost had like greater expectation in that, in that first half Ironman. And, um, made just about every mistake you could possibly make as a rookie, which was, um, you know, Uh, I decided that I wasn't aerodynamic enough the night before the race. So I lowered, I flipped my stem and lowered, essentially lowering my bars about six uh, centimeters. (laughs) 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 Literally, literally the night before the night before the race. The engineer, the engineer paralyzing your athletic performance. This is all going, you gotta, you gotta remember Galveston is literally 28 miles straight flat road out, turn around 28 miles straight, flat road back. You are just, you're locked in the same position for 56 miles. Yep. And, um, and so, uh, you know, so I have this experience. So I go out, I swim. I'm, I remember very clearly being the last person out of the water. I was the only bike, uh, left in the, uh, in transition, but I get on the bike and I start hammering away and I do start passing some people riding super hard. Uh, I'm not taking in any, nearly any hydration or nutrition or whatever. I don't really know what I'm doing. I start to come back and my back, my back and my, and my butt starts to just ache and ache and ache and cramp. And, um, and I remember the funny part about this is the last like three miles after the one straight road is this like little winding road back to wherever T2 is. And so you take a left off this last three miles 
And I was so cramped up and so locked up my lower back and my hips and my glutes that I had to just, I literally, I couldn't even sit up like just in a sitting position. I had to stand (laughs) 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 And, and for three miles straight on a, flat road i stood out of my (laughs) saddle (laughs) all the way back into t2 (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we don't need to go to the run do we because there wasn't much of a run Uh, mile or two and i pulled out with just massive cramping uh in all in my legs all over the place yeah it was bad news so so we have this experience and we sort of dissected it i mean the good news out of it from a coach is at least i had something to point to the uh the night before the the race maybe that had some element of uh of contribute contribution to it but just two weeks later then we go to wildflower so i think it's fair to say that that you have no expectations and i don't mean low (laughs) expectations we had no expectations for this race it was it, it was really a bit of a last minute addition to the game plan and, and mostly down ironically not to your coach saying you should go there but it was really down to Matt Liedo saying hey you want to come more than anything wasn't it yeah it was actually it was it was actually literally Matt was going to go race and he was going to drive down from Bend <coughs> and Matt excuse me so yeah it was literally Matt was going to go race and he was going to drive down from Bend and he just didn't want to have to drive the whole way by himself so he was basically like, hey, Jesse, you should come race Wildflower. And by the way, you should drive down with me so we can we can share driving duties in my van. And um, and that was the whole reason I got I did it. It wasn't as you can remember, it wasn't even on the schedule, it wasn't even planned. And um, we did it. And and if if the listeners close their eyes and they envision a professional athlete arriving to the race with corporate logos on their career and the most on on their uniform and the most wonderful equipment, let's go through. It's the antithesis of this. So I want to draw a picture yeah. of how you showed up. So you're you're going on the man van with Matt, who at the time was a Purple Patch athlete, still a great yeah. friend of of yours and mine, and Purple Patch. Yeah. You're driving down the coast to Central California. Let's go through your equipment because I think this is really important. You weren't even riding your bike. No, I, I literally, the day before we were supposed to leave, I was out doing a ride and I went over a big bump pothole and my frame cracked. And, um, and I remember taking, I took it into the shop and they were like, yeah, man, you should definitely not ride this frame. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, what am I going to do? I, I called a friend in Eugene and he lent me his triathlon bike. Uh, and so I, I, I don't even remember what, I think it was a Scott something. Um, but it was, you know, like kind of a mid-level triathlon bike. I had, I did have my Rolf Prima wheels. That was the only sponsor I had cause they were a Eugene company and the, the owner had seen me at a time trial in there. Um, so he, I had those and then I had a arrow helmet that I borrowed from Matt. Uh, it was his like, uh, you know, kind of throwaway arrow helmet. And, um, I had a race, uh, just an off the shelf Pearl Izumi race kit that a friend of mine who was a Pearl Izumi, an ex Pearl Izumi rep had in his like box of old Pearl Izumi. <laughs> it was like three years old and, um, no, you know, just a tiny little Pearl Izumi logo on it. And, uh, and that was it. And then of course, you know, what people, what ultimately, for better and for worse, became my thing, these, like, drugstore uh, aviators. 
that I was wearing around and um and that was it that was my that was my stuff and and, uh, and, yeah. and, and the aviators i mean it, it was genuinely first it was a, a drugstore pair it was a two dollar pair of aviators yeah. here and and the reason you wore those which many people didn't realize at the time was that you you had a prior broken neck and so they were the glasses that you could see out of versus the new trendy sports glasses basically that that was the yeah. sort of part of the reason yeah yeah that was that was literally it it was basically there, there was no rim uh, with the aviators that would kind of cloud my field of vision uh, on the bike because I could I, I and I still can't tilt my head back all the way I lost a, because of that accident and the surgery I lost about uh, 20% of my motion tilting my head back and about 50% of my motion rotating uh, left to right so so yeah so that was why I was wearing those glasses and um, you know that just that just added up all that added up uh, to, you know, the amazingness that I had there. Well, it was a, it was a picture. And by the way, your lack of mobility or motion from side to left, you know, it's the first five years of my coaching you that, that gave me great pleasure by talking just over your left <laughs> shoulder so that you'd have to turn <laughs> every time. Exactly. But so, so you drive down with Matt. Now that the venue of wildflower, this race, uh, the majority of athletes are camping in tents, some in RVs, and then there's the treasure of if you can get the cabin by the lake, there's a series of about a cluster of about six or eight cabins that you get to stay in that the, the most professional elite triathletes get to stay in. And Matt was lucky enough to have one of those cabins. So through backdoor access, you basically got a lakeside venue at the, uh, at the race itself. But how, how cozy was your bed? Well, yeah, that's the thing, Matt and Matt, I should say, I mean, Matt had been going there for a while, but Matt, the reason Matt got the cabin was because of Leander Cave <laughs> and he was friends with Leander Cave on the K-Swiss Trek team. And she invited him to that cabin and he was like, Hey, can my friend come and stay with us too? And then she ended up not racing. And so we had, you know, so there was a, a little, there was an extra spot for me, but yeah, I ended up, uh, I ended up not wanting to. Uh, Chris Lee was the other guy that was staying with us was this incredibly successful kind of like the man Chris Lee from Australia I don't know won however many bunch of races Um, and I didn't want to put make Chris Lee share a room with me so I ended up taking a mattress off of the bunk bed out of the room and putting it in the closet (laughs) barely barely fit in there Um, and that was it and you you slept in the closet so you're you're made up for equipment you're sleeping in the closet you go to this yep. race do, do you remember your expectations or your mindset coming off this Galveston race where you've cramped you've made the mistakes it's not the most prestigious start to your pro career did you what were your expectations and your mindset going into this i do remember it because i remember because uh, you know i mean and partially because i've talked about it in the years since but um but I do remember very clearly talking with you and being like, I just want to finish. And that was the, and that was it. There were no expectations beyond in terms of place or what I didn't even, you know, I was so new to the sport. I didn't even know who was in the field or I didn't even pay attention to that. It was more just like, I just want to finish, feel good about a performance here, get myself through a half Ironman. I, I had a lot of respect and, and some fear of the course, um, knowing that it was so hard, so much harder than Galveston, which I didn't finish. Um, and that was it. That was how I went into it. 
So we had to race day. We have to uh, set the stage of race day because it's highly valuable for me as a coach to be able to watch a race live. And uh, and especially as I'm getting to know an athlete, as I was at the time with you, to, to see you race in person and see you against your competition in person. But I was not there. I was actually leading an adventure ride with 50 athletes in the Bay Area. And uh, we have very limited communication. My only source of update throughout the race was texts from a good friend of mine, Jerry Rodriguez from Tower 26, who I said, hey, if you're going to follow the little social media that was happening out of the race and any updates, he was getting updates from one of his coached athletes who was spectating and, and then sending it to me. Uh, so, so I was well removed with this experience and didn't see anything live. Um, you were there with, I think just your family, were you somebody, did any of your family come down or was it just no, you and Matt? It was just Matt and I. Yep. Okay. So, so let's go story of the race. Um, the swim, you said you came out of the swim at the very back at Galveston. Yeah, how I, did you, yeah. how about Wildflower? Oh, it was very similar. Like I, 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 I definitely was not even in the second pack, you know? Um, similarly still, still, you know, it wasn't until the next year or two that I actually was even swimming in a pack. So it came out, uh, pretty much solo, you know, probably behind the second pack and, and, um, and jumped on my bike and just started riding all by myself, you know? And, Uh, and, and you rode, how, how long was it until you started catching people? Um, probably after the first, you know, you have like the first, uh, you climb out of the park and then you have the first like 12 or 15 miles out is kind of, is some rolling, uh, terrain. And I, I knew that even though I wasn't a great TT rider yet, I knew I was, uh, strong on the Hills. I think most guys that come from like strength running backgrounds tend to be pretty good, tend to be pretty good climbers. Cause it's basically running on, on a bike. And, um, and so I knew I could make up some time on the hills. So I really worked the hills and I remember starting to catch people at the end of that section, right. As you turn on to like, uh, the flat, uh, Jolon road, I think it is mm-hmm. starting to, and, and it was, was really exciting because for the first time kind of having some people in sight and moving through the field just felt positive, you know? And when, what part of the race in rough mileage did you start to feel like you were really part of the race, like either moving to the top 10 or moving to the top five? Um, uh, not even, I rode the whole ride completely blind, not, not knowing I did. I remember passing people, but still thinking I was way at the tail end of the race, you know, as we were, as, uh, we we're going up over, over, over nasty grade. And, but, but I was riding really hard. I felt strong. Um, the hills obviously were playing to my benefit. And then, um, and then it was, uh, because that the nature of that race, you know, you have no chances unless somebody's giving you updates, nobody's giving you updates that far back, um, where you are. So I didn't know where I was until I started the run and I heard the announcer or someone tell me that I was in 10th or 11th place starting the run at, at the start of the run and the, and the run is 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 hilly and hard um yeah. so, so we'll do my first update that i get i'm i'm out there i'm leading 50 people on a ride chatting to people and i got a text from jerry and it, and it read something like this it said i don't know how jess is doing uh but there's some there is some guy in black that no one knows who it is and his number is number 87 and uh, so we have this mystery guy and, and that was it. So um, so it wasn't at the end of the bike ride. I had no information at all apart from I don't know how Jess is doing, which isn't that valuable as a coach. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I've blamed, blamed Jerry ever since. And, um, and so, so we hit the run. 
you, first you're up in the race. You're, you're you're up onto your strength. You're you're close to top ten or top ten. Do you remember? Do you remember how the first miles felt? And you, you obviously started to move through the field relatively yeah. quickly. Yep, I remember very specifically being like, um, like either hearing that, like I, I remember. So maybe I heard I was an eleventh or something like that. But I remember like in the first mile or two passing someone and thinking, "Wow, I'm in the top ten. Like this is awesome. Like I, I am so psyched. I just got to hold on, and I'm going to finish top ten at Wildflower." And um, and you know, but kept uh, kept moving up and um. And, and not, you know, not ever honestly thinking beyond the next person in front of me. Uh, but I felt decent. I mean, it's, it's a, obviously a hard race. So, I mean, I, I was tired, but I, but my legs felt good. Like I felt like I was running well, uh, running within myself. And I just kept like every time I had a long exposed section, I could see another guy or two. And I started kind of clipping them off one by one. And I remember for that next uh, five miles kind of up to the top of the big, big climb, I passed. I, I got up. Um, I actually came up on uh, Matt Lieto at the very top of that climb. And I'd, so I'd passed like two or three other people. So I was in like seventh or sixth maybe. And Matt was in fifth and, uh, and there's this like story, this quick side story to this, where Matt had told me that, um, I could borrow all his stuff if he just, if I promised not to pass him on the run. And, <laughs> and so I came up behind him and, and he was like, good job, dude. And I was like, Hey man, thanks. He's like, is all, is, I was like, is it cool if I pass you? And he was like, he's like, yeah, man, Claude, Claude C. <laughs> and there was something about clause c was if i was having a great race he could invoke clause c which which allowed me to pass him but i had to continue running really well and um and not get uh not get repassed by anyone and so uh so i went down i remember because that that literally happened right as you crest that big big hill where you can see the the long downhill stretch to the right and and uh and i passed matt there and i could see two more guys in front of me who were, I think, fourth and third place. And I would just about shit myself because I was like, wow, I'm within eyesight of the third podium. at Yeah, the podium at Wildflower. And I'm running well. Like, I think I'm running faster than those guys. And, um, yeah, it was just shocking. And, and it's, 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 in, it, it's interesting at this because this is not a race that you can really be looking at your pace because it's so no. uneven. It's on trail so, you're running. Yeah. And it's not a race that you're getting out and backs where you're seeing the rest of the field. You are, yeah. you know, until very late in the race, you have no information and really no splits here. Yeah. So, no, so, no, not at all. So it's the most pure form of racing. Next guy, next guy, next guy. Yep. Um, it, it was about that time of the race that I got my next text from Jerry, by the way, and it, and it said something like, the guy, the, the guy in black number 87 is flying. We still don't know who it is. I think it's Jesse. And then five minutes later, the next text came in and said, oh, no, that's actually, I think, an, a Portuguese athlete. And then text, <laughs> text number three came in. Maybe it's Jesse. They said he's got curly hair. He's up to third or fourth. <laughs> and of course, my, my coaching experience told me, 
well, I know that he's not going to be in third, so it's probably the Portuguese guy. And, uh, so I went back to coaching and I was like, well, I hope Jesse's having a good race, but, uh, yeah. but the Portuguese guy is clearly flying, whoever this mysterious number 87 is or whatever the number was. Um, so, so at what stage, what, what mile did you start to think, you know, by now you're, you're chasing third and fourth, you're right there. At what stage did you actually start to think, I might have a shot here. It was a few miles later because I would I fourth now, if I remember correctly, ended up being uh, Chris Lee, and I remember, so I remember passing Chris Lee and thinking, "Wow, I'm having a ridiculous race." I just passed Chris Lee, and then third, if I remember correctly, as well, <clears throat> was Jordan Rap, and I remember and Jordan, you know, was a huge name in the sport, and I remember thinking. Jesus, I just passed Jordan Rapp. Like I'm having the race of my life, and um, <clears throat> and uh, and then and then we wind through. You wind through, and that happened right as we entered the the campground. And you wind through the campground. And it was pretty blind, and then you do the long out and back. That's just kind of like a tough death march uh, along the road. Uh, when you come out of the campground, you have about two and a half miles to go. And I could see that was the only turnaround that we had. And the guy that was in front was still a long ways in front of me. The guy that was uh, one place in front of me, uh, I could see he hadn't hit the turnaround yet. And so I, I closed the gap to him pretty fast. And I remember thinking, like, there's still no chance I'm going to get, you know, like, I, I remember thinking more like I want to protect second place than like I'm going to try to win. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I was worried about cramping, about dying, um, you know, and not, not being able to walk in the last mile for some re- or not being able to run in the last mile for some reason. And, uh, but I just kept trucking and, and coming up that long, long uphill, uh, with about a mile and a half to go. I saw who I think ended up being Clayton Fattel, um, still up in the lead, like clearly, running slower quite a bit slower than I was but he was still a long ways up there but I floated up that hill as best I could and like and he was just coming just reeling in fast you know like fast 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 and then by the time we I passed him around the last corner heading down like right as you turn on to Lynch uh and um with less than a mile to go of straight downhill on pavement and I passed him right there and I passed him. I remember thinking my dad always told me in running pass when you pass, pass with authority, right? Pass with authority. And, and I remember thinking about my dad at that moment and um, being like, I got to run by this. And I ran by him so fast, (laughs) way, way too fast in hindsight, but I had so much adrenaline um, I just went ripping down that hill and all, almost fell uh, because the hill was so steep. And I just remember running down that hill, just being so scared that I was going to cramp or that I was going to trip or fall or like something was going to happen because I couldn't, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that I was in the lead and that I was maybe going to win this huge race, uh, you know, in professional triathlon. And, uh, and I kept, 
looking back over my shoulder. I kept asking the lead cyclist guy, is he gaining on me? Is he gaining on me? And he'd be like, no, man, he's not. (laughs) 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 And then I came down and, you know, uh, just had this shocking trot down the, down the runway. And, uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing feeling across the finish line one. And and this race to for for people that haven't been to the race or are maybe newer to the sport or not even in the sport, it, this is one of the most historic races. The list of people that have competed here and raced here are, are many of the the very best in the world. And um, and if you looked at the the races that or the race the the winners of the the previous line, it's this wonderful sort of uh, list of of some of the biggest names. And so to put your name up there. It must have been a surreal moment, you know. For, for me as a coach, what I got from that time as the Portuguese guy went flying past Clayton Fatel was a text to say the Portuguese flies is a guy is flying. No word on Jesse, and <laughs> um, uh, and then you cross the finish line. Uh, tell us about the finish line. Was it was it here comes Jesse Thomas? What, what right, was yeah. the finish line? <laughs> no, yeah, so I mean, so like I said, I signed up. I wasn't going to do the race. They let me sign up late because I, basically because I was Matt's friend. And because of that, they had already allocated all of the pro man, pro male and female run, female uh, numbers. One through 50 were pro male or whatever. 50 through 100 were pro female. And the, all they had left was this number after the pro females, which was uh, 87. That was, that was the last non, uh, you know, Amateur age group number they had. And so nobody knew what they, you know, cause it was like a kind of a pro females number, but it was obviously I was a male guy. So they thought maybe I was like an age grouper that was lost. They couldn't, there was no record of my registration, um, you know, in the, in the electronic records. And so they didn't know who I was and nobody knew who I was period. So when I crossed the finish line, the announcer goes, and here he is our men's champion. And then he ho- he kind of puts a microphone to the side and he comes up to me. He's like, hey, man, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the, the glory of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I do remember the next thing I got was a uh, – I got a call. I didn't get a text and it was from Jerry. And rather excitedly, in Jerry's very calm voice, he said, Jesse won. And uh, and I remember from my side, the coach's saying, I didn't believe him. <laughs> I thought he was messing with me, and I I told him to f off, and uh, and uh, and so he said, "No, seriously, Jesse won. He was the guy. He was the ghost, basically." And um, and so the flying Portuguese man became you, and um, and that was the that was the catalyst. That was the platform. You know, the aftermath, the experience, and everything. I think we could be very gushing, but. I, I'm most interested. How, how, when you look back on that now, and you went on to do something that no one has ever done, you went on to repeat six times. Uh, it was a pivotal moment for you in your your professional triathlon career, both both practically and emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was you know looking back on it, um, you know, and kind of removing my myself from it, I guess, a little bit. Like, um, it was it was a very authentic sports moment, you know, just in general, like regardless of whether it's me talking about myself or whatever, like it it was just, it was a kind of like Cinderella sports story where a a legitimately unsuspecting uh, competitor 
wins something that they did that was just unfathomable at, at the time, honestly unfathomable. And, um, you know, with, with no lit or little to no support, like just no notoriety, no whatever. And, um, and to a certain extent that ended up being weirdly, um, encapsulated in this, uh, post race YouTube, they were streaming interviews from, uh, from the post-race site and the, the woman that interviewed me was, you know, I, it was clear that this, that, that this was an authentic experience that I just had. I was <laughs> shitting myself, you know, telling them like, Oh my God, my buddy in Eugene is going to freak. I had no idea what to say, you know, like it was just, it was just so funny. Um, and that, that YouTube video went up, you know, went up on YouTube and it just became this like really, uh, cool way for me to launch my career. Cause it was this kind of every man, you know, kind of like the, the amateur triathlete next door goes and wins this big race. And it, that was really cool. It, it, it was. And, you know, it became the, the catalyst for your I, I hate to use this word, your brand in many ways, but I, I feel like from a coach's point of view, it was, there were two things that were really interesting out of it. Uh, the first was, was how tough it is to manage success. And, um, suddenly you get catapulted. You know, there were Chris McCormack, I remember tweeting just congratulations. Let you, you're suddenly having these sort of icons of the sport and you, you are effective. No one. It was very, very challenging to manage success which i think people underappreciate the next race you go to it's like it can either be a, a platform or a springboard or it can be daunting um but i think that the 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 really the the thing about wildflower that made you into a great world-class athlete was defending was having to go back there the next year and and i want to just spend a minute on that because that that, that was genuinely probably the most fear that you have had coming back for, for any race. Would, would you say that's true? hundred percent. The, the, the first time. Uh, so like 2012 where I was coming back to defend it. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I went through the rest of this. So that, you know, the kind of, and this all leads into it, but the postscript on the rest of the season, I had, I think a successful rest of the season. I didn't win any other races, but I was, you know, top six and a couple other, in a couple other races and, and, um, you know, clearly I'd like started to establish myself as kind of a, a good pro, but not a, not somebody that was going to go win races, um, and, and improving. Um, so then it was kind of like the next year, um, you know, uh, I'm actually, I, I, my, my triathlete magazine column has started and they are doing a big, it's the 25th anniversary of wildflower and so they're doing a big cover story on Wildflower, and they want to put me on the cover of the magazine. And so it was not only like, okay, here's this kind of like unknown, most people think fluke that he won the first year, my, to be perfectly honest, myself included. And um, now he's going to be on the cover of Triathlete Magazine with his aviators on. Uh, all about, um, you know, talking all about wildflower and I, and I was facing, I can't remember specifically who that year, but I mean, a, a, another, you know, solid, very, very deep field. Yeah. Yeah. Very good field. And, um, 
And I remember being really ner- like the, far and away the most nervous I'd ever been before any race, uh, probably in my entire life, including all of my collegiate, you know, NCAAs and USA championships and everything else. And, uh, the amount of pressure was, was immense. Yeah, it was scary. And, you know, you, the, the image, it, it's become, you know, a well-known image because it had your radio, the ADA, aviators, but everywhere you went, there were these more than life-size pictures of you standing there and your aviators yep. everywhere, all yep. over the course. I mean, it was, it was, and you had a lot of responsibilities with interviews to talking about last year. I, I remember standing because I was there the, the second year. And I remember in transition, you coming up to me and saying, I think I'm sick. I think I'm actually yeah. sick. And, um, and I remember the conversation there that, that we had as a coach that you, you know, that we can go back and forth on if we want, but, uh, but trying to diffuse everything I could do to diffuse the pressure and make it very process driven for you. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I, I, you know, I forgot about that too with the extra pressures and stuff because I mean, that was, I was sponsored then all, you know, I was a specialized athlete now and a Pearl Izumi athlete and like both of them were exhibiting there. So I had, you know, and then I had, and I was signing triathlete magazine, uh, copies. It was just, um, just the change from the year before where I was literally just walking through the festival completely unknown to having it be impossible to walk through the festival without, you know, uh, you know, somebody, you know, asking me for, for something or whatever. Um, it was a lot of, yeah, it was a lot of pressure. I was so nervous. It was, that was tough. And I did, I, I remember feeling sick, whether it was mental or, or actually physical or whatever, but, um, it was hard. And, and, you know, the great hallmark of, and, and I will give you this compliment because you have this, the, the racer uh, came out of you naturally. Uh, once, once the gun went off, you, you raced very, very well. And in fact, the, the key about the the second year is you ra- raced a tactically perfect race and um, and just had a great experience and I think that that was a huge lesson for you with managing that type of stress. You already had your whole running career as well, so you're obviously a great racer naturally. But I thought it was a, a pivotal moment in your career, interestingly, in a different way. Um, yeah. It was. Is, so, so now, you know, I think many people know, but the race went away and it went away because of the California droughts we have over the last few years. And they did everything they could to sort of adjust the course. Uh, you ended up winning it six years in a row and then the race was was cancelled or put on pause. It's back this year and um, and you're returning. What are your hopes and expectations for this year in a different stage of your career? What's the weekend going to be like? What, what how, What's your lens when you come back to this race? Yeah, it's weird. Lauren and I were just talking about this uh, the other day. Um, it feels uh, it feels full circle for me um, in that, uh, you know, you think about that first year and all of the unknowns that I faced, both in the race itself and in my career in general, like I didn't even know what it meant to be a professional triathlete. How was I going to make an income being a professional triathlete? Um, and, and, and then all of it being as well, like kind of very self focused, uh, you know, I mean, at that point I was just barely married and had a wife who was a professional athlete. We were both very much like independent operators. And now seven, eight years later, 
I have, um, I've been a pro athlete for seven or eight years. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, what you maybe could say the peak of my career already, or I'm at the peak or, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm near that kind of twilight of my career. Um, I've made a living doing it that I never expected to make. Uh, I have, I, I have, I'm super familiar with all the responsibilities that come along with representing brands and having sponsors and doing expo stuff and photo shoots and, and, and having fans that, that, um, you know, that, uh, talk to you at races and, and I have a family now and my priorities have fundamentally changed from where they were, uh, seven or eight years ago in terms of what's important for me in my career and what the next step is and, uh, you know, what I want to accomplish out of my life right now, um, looking forward. And so this kind of like, for me, it, it feels in a weird way, it feels like my last wildflower, even though I, I'm not totally sure that it is, but it, it kind of feels like appropriate to be coming back here with my family, with everything that we've done. And in a weird way, maybe not say goodbye to the sport, but, or goodbye to, uh, sorry, goodbye to wildflower, but, but say like, just experience that again and reflect on it, I guess, in and, and, and kind of bring it back to where it all started and, and just go experience that day, you know, and, and I don't really know what that means, but, but that's the way that it feels to me. Because th th this race is different, isn't it? This is a yeah, very special race. So, yeah, what, for, for people that haven't been there, what makes it so special? I think that there is a, with the, I think that there is a experience that you have at this race that is unique to, to this race only. And I think that that experience happens because of the communal living that everyone has in and around the festival and in the campgrounds. Because of that, more so than any other race, you feel like you're all in it together. And, um, and so even though the race is crazy competitive, crazy hard, uh, you know, one of the most demanding courses on the planet, um, there's this real sense of community and support because you're literally running and racing through like campgrounds with your fellow competitors and your competitors family and, and, and everything else. And people are cheering you on and everybody's kind of like, wow, we're in this together. Like this is hard uh, but we're enjoying it and we're all going to have a beer at the one place you can have a beer down in the festival at the, at the end it's like it, it there's no, it's not nearly as fragmented as a half iron man where you're everybody's staying in their own hotels and they come together for the race and then they leave right yeah and um, <clears throat> and i think because of that it's a it's even though it's a world-class event with thousands and thousands of people it feels like a saturday morning local triathlon and that to me is a, is i have not experienced that in another event anywhere in in the in the you know hundred well at least a hundred different events i've done over the last eight years it, it's it's very special and it's uh yeah. i mean do, do you feel pressure to win uh yeah for sure i mean not so much for myself uh internally but i'm sure that the majority 
majority of uh, people spectating and following the race, uh, you know, expect me to win. Um, uh, but you know, I think for me, while you know, I'm like you said, I'm a competitor. I'm a racer uh, at the at the end of the day. And I never want to lose. I always want to want you know. I'd always rather win. Uh, there is some. There is weirdly something that would be nice about passing on the torch of this race to somebody else to to be honest and not in that i'm tired of the race in any way shape or form but just in that uh you know i'm re- i i feel like mentally ready to like kind of move on to other things in in you know in my career and 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 everything else and i'll always love wildflower i'll probably come back with my kids if it's something that that interests them um you know down the road but but so, yeah, so I, I feel like a mixed bag about it. I want to win, but at the same time, I'm not afraid of losing. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's it. That's the commitment. I, I want to finish actually talking about one of your sponsors that's, uh, that's been a fantastic sponsor. A, a couple of Stanford University, uh, guys as well that you met at Stanford, uh, Rob and Kurt from Roka. Yep. And, uh, you've had a, a great relationship with, with them. Uh, in fact, it, it's, it, it's true to say that you were the first sponsored Roker athlete. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. And uh, you even had before they had even formalized their company. Yeah, we started working together. And and they started with uh, with just wetsuits. And they said, you know what we need is a uh, we need a really good swimmer. So they chose <laughs> yeah. you. Is that 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 was how the relationship? In fact, many. I mean, you've said to me many times, Roker wouldn't have happened without you. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Rob and Kurt wouldn't have amounted to much. They're just two of the most like brilliant and talented guys on the planet. Exactly. Uh, no, they, uh, no the, the funny thing I like to tell is that we got introduced from a mutual Stanford friend, Dave Mayer, who's the founder of Clean Bottle. And he he's emailed us. I pulled this email up the other day because Roca just had their five year anniversary. And um and they uh and they and it said uh they basically were like, Hey Jesse, we, uh, we really like what you're doing in the sport. We really would love, we're, we're, we want to create some new and, and innovative, uh, you know, wetsuits and we'd really love to help make you a faster swimmer. And I was like, you look back at that and you think about how shitty of a swimmer I was. <laughs> I was not getting any emails like that from anybody. <laughs> They're like, please, please come and represent our wetsuit brand. Um, and actually you know, not to like over answer it, but that for that second year that we mentioned in 2012, where I had a much more tactical race, that part of that was because that was the first time I came out with a group of people in, in the swim. And I was in a prototype Roka wetsuit. uh, It it was a wetsuit. In fact, I I very clearly remember you saying me that there's a new wetsuit company that said they want to sign me. And I said, take it. (laughs) But, um, and, and you also gave them your eyes. You know, one of the discussions that we had very early on was don't, don't just go and get a fancy sunglass sponsor, you know, you, yeah. and, um, and finally you do now wear Roka sunglasses. Um, yeah. Which- remember we, we talked about you help, you know, we talked to, I passed on a whole bunch of, of eyewear sponsorships because, um, because they were, you know, it was basically like people either just wanted me to wear their eyewear or plop on like some pair of aviators and wear their wear their thing that was that to me wasn't like uh, it, it just diluted the 
the idea of it and it what they weren't like innovative products. And, uh, but, I, but I, I remember very early on with Rob and Kurt kind of right as we were getting the wetsuit stuff going, talking to them about being like, Hey guys, you know, I know that this kind of like aviator thing is kind of like funny and kind of, and kind of goofy and, and whatever else. But I really do think that there is a, that there is, you know, an opportunity to make performance casual sunglasses where you have casual styles like an aviator or like a Wayfarer or whatever, but you put performance characteristics on them with, you know, rubber, you know, pads and stuff that stick to your face, anti-fog, really good uh, lenses and really light materials. And, and, um, they were both into that and they were like, yeah, maybe, you know, down the road. And the, but then eventually we actually, you know, we actually did it, which was really cool. And I waited for that to happen uh, to kind of endorse a product, and and that what they came up with was amazing. Well, the reason I brought them up, apart from I think it's a great story, and they were such an early supporter, and have obviously gone on to create you know, a really incredible company. And, and you and I both know them uh, personally; that they, they are both fantastic and, and and extremely talented individuals. But we've teamed up, and. Um, and we wanted to do, we wanted to do something special out of this episode uh, for the listeners because we thought it would be really fun. And so, Purple Patch, your company, Picky Bars, and Roker have teamed up to to do a giveaway based on this discussion wrapped around Wildflower with uh, with a couple of prizes. I'm going to go through the prizes really quickly. Uh, the big one, we're going to have one grand prize winner, which uh, the winner will get this. There's almost fifteen hundred dollars worth of prizes here. You get a uh, a Roker Maverick Pro websuit. You're going to have uh, this devalues the co- the uh, prize potentially, but they're going to have a coaching consultation with myself. Uh, go through and uh, and spend an hour to ninety minutes with me. A whole host of Picky Bar oats, your new products from Picky Bars, which I, I know is going swimmingly well and uh, and uh, received really really well. A lot of our campers in the Hawaii camp just uh, use that for breakfast every day. Awesome. Uh, Picky Bars, really good, and a uh, and Life Points water bottle. So a real a fantastic package. And then there are a couple of uh, first runner-up packages, which include some uh, Roka Aviator sunglasses, the same sunglasses that you wear yep. uh, that we just talked about, a copy of the Fast Track Triathlete from me that's going to be signed, uh, a bunch of Piggy Bar products, uh, both oats and bars. And then third, uh, a Roka swim bag with the full suite of swim training accessories, uh, a purple patch uh, body of swag, including a trucker hat, some other stuff, and some picky bars. So there's some wonderful prizes. We're going to uh, notify the winner after May 7th and um, and go through. But it's going to be very, very simple. We're going we're gonna to do it in a simple way. The, all you have to do is go to purplepatchfitness.com. We'll have it on the front page. And you just need to register. And there are going to be, on the uh, contest page, there are going to be multiple ways that you can register and get your name in the hat and then we're going to go through and we're just going to do a simple draw, just a grand prize draw. And um, and on behalf of Picky Bars, Purple Patch and Roka, you could get some very nice goodies at your name because we're all so into the Jesse Thomas story. We're so into Wildflower and we thought it would be really nice to do a giveaway on the back end of this. Yeah, it's awesome that those guys uh, have been so so generous to me and, and my fans and, and everything else. So. Uh, it's, it's a cool opportunity, and I, I really appreciate them supporting me the way that they have. That's going to be great fun. So 
we'll be down there. Purple Patch will be there. Obviously, Jesse, you'll be there racing uh, and, and all over the place. I mean, it's very, very hard to miss people that you want to see at Wildflower because, as you say, there's there's no escape. We're all we're all going down to the, the fun prison island. As, uh, yep. And I'm, I'm sure via your social media, our social media, we'll give further details on some of the events that people might be able to participate um, and and my last words for it is if it's your first time of going to Wildflower, embrace it, have no expectations, but immerse yourself in some of the logistics and craziness. And, and I hope that you're excited. And, and if you're going back after the race, not been on for the last couple of years, um, I hope that you come back with a similar mindset to Jesse of, of really something thankful that is coming back to our sport, which I, I think our sport needs. And we hope that it continues for a long time yet so yeah. um jesse thank you so much for spending the time and um we will record another one of these podcasts and we're going to talk all about you and uh, and your life so we look forward to part two <laughs> coming up on thursday awesome thanks Cheers, matt take care well folks what a story that was so enjoyable to talk to jesse it's so nice to go back in time and think about something that was such an important event for him as an athlete and of course such a catalyst for our coaching relationship i think you'll find part two equally inspiring and interesting we get a little bit more granular we talk about performance across both the world-class athletics that he's seeking as well as of course what it's like to grow a company like picky bars lots of lessons in episode two so come back and check us out then until then get going to purplepatchfitness.com get included in the wildflower giveaway and we'll get cracking i hope to see you down there cheers